0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History. My name is Marshall Poe, and I'm your host. Every week we pick a new history book, and we interview the author of that book. We find these books particularly interesting, and we hope that you'll find them interesting as well. This week we have Abigail Fersner on the show. She's the author of James Van Allen, The First 8 Billion Miles, which recently appeared from the University of Iowa Press. Uh, We're especially... Happy to have Abigail on the show today and to be talking about James Van Allen, because as you'll learn in the course of the interview, there's a connection between James Van Allen and the University of Iowa. I'm speaking to you from the University of Iowa, where I teach. So here's the interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Abigail. Hi, Marshall. It's very good to talk to you. Uh, we're very pleased to have Abigail Firstner on the show today. We'll be talking about her book. Um, James Van Allen, the first 8 billion miles, 8 billion, that's a lot of miles. So uh, why don't we begin by having you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up and where you went to school and so on and so forth.
1: Okay, well, I grew up in uh, the Chicago area, um, in Chicago itself, but I have roots in Iowa. My um, my father's family, uh, going back uh, four or five generations, came from the Amana colonies. And so he, he came to the big city and settled here, but we uh, went often back to Iowa to visit um, my grandparents in South Amana. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, growing up in, Chico- in Chicago, I uh, went to um, uh, a public grade school, Dever School, and and was already interested in journalism. Really? You know, worked on the little student paper there. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, went to Mother Theodore Guerin High School, and um, it, this was a new high school in Chicago, and so had the opportunity to work with some with some great journalism teachers and to launch the uh, student newspaper, wow. um, which was Portals at the time. It's now called um, Voyager, and and then went on knowing I really wanted to be a journalist. I, I loved science too. I was in every science fair I could I could um, possibly become involved in, um, but uh, I really loved writing and loved journalism and loved the idea of of uh, bringing science and, and audiences closer together. So I went to Northwestern University to the Medill School of Journalism. Um, it was fabulous. Uh, then I'm teaching there now uh, and had had opportunities to per- pursue. Both science and journalism, um, in uh, you know print, radio, television formats, and uh, through one of my instructors, after I'd uh, gotten my master's degree, uh, I'd gone on to uh, some environmental magazines, and then uh, after that, uh, through uh, through another instructor um, uh, who was um, at Chicago Today, uh, a former newspaper in Chicago. He uh, he said they were looking for uh, reporters at these new regional sections of the Chicago Tribune, and they were looking for an environmental reporter. And uh, so I went out there with uh, with this um, credential and experience with uh, a group of environmental magazines. And uh, and they, while I was doing the interview, um, the editor said, uh, you know, uh, they're building this. National Laboratory, just west of us, uh, Fermi National Laboratory, you know, do you happen to know what's going on out there? And I did. I you know, I said, oh, this is a fabulous place. It's an atom smasher. They're going to be searching for the fundamental building blocks of matter right. and, you know, it's really going to be exciting uh, fundamental research. And he said, great, you can cover that too. <laughs> so this <laughs> turned into my dream job. I was covering stories at uh, Fermi Lab and at the Argonne um, National Laboratory Jury, um, doing a lot of stories on on energy when I started at these um, you know suburban regional sections of the Tribune. It was um, uh, right uh, in the uh, early 70s, uh, the first Arab oil embargo, the first sense of of the energy crisis. I remember yeah yeah so it was this great time great opportunity to do stories on the environment on alternative energy um on on fabulous research being done um in uh, the chicago area and I had a lot of fun <laughs> uh, so I uh, continued uh writing for these sections uh-huh. uh for oh close to ten years, and I was raising a family and decided to um to freelance and and ended up freelancing almost exclusively for the Tribune in the arts um, uh, started writing for the new Friday section of the Tribune, um, writing weekly uh, reviews on photography for uh, for uh, almost ten years and uh, this just became a whole new universe um, you know to explore uh, truth and beauty if you will right. and and I really uh, realized that art and science as in their Pursuit of, of fundamental truths in their uh, pursuit of, of, of fundamental outlooks uh, about our universe really had a lot in common, and it was um, a, again just a gift of an opportunity um, to kind of cross over between the two. Uh-huh.
2: I see what you're saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and so I've continued to do that in my writing, um, and now as an instructor, uh, just uh, I'm teaching science journalism at Northwestern, but I continue to write in the arts and, and in the sciences. Um, i an arts columnist for a magazine in the Chicago area, great. and of course, the Van Allen biography um, uh, gave me, you know, seven sustained years of, of pursuing um, research and writing uh, in the sciences and in space science. Uh, one of my particular loves, and certainly one of certainly Dr. Van Allen's um, lifelong commitment.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's a fantastic career, Abigail. I mean, I just to congratulate you on it. I mean, it just well, sounds so interesting. Every bit thank of you. it just sounds absolutely. Absolutely fantastic, and then to be teaching at Northwestern where you were a student that just must be such a great honor. I can only imagine you know it's just terrific yeah i I wonder if it, if this is a little bit off the topic, but you know uh, I occasionally have the um opportunity to counsel journalism students here at the University of Iowa. Is it still possible to have such a career in journalism?
1: you know, I think this is a fabulous time to be going into journalism and that's what I tell my students because um while we see uh you know some some media uh, Challenged um, newspapers, in particular, uh, there's this whole new arena of communication yeah, uh, rolling out with the web, um, with multimedia, and and I think um, you know students get to literally do it all. Um, they'll be doing podcasts, such as the one you're doing yeah. right now. There are going to be all sorts of new forums, um, new possibilities with the web, uh, with the web uh, presence for um, magazines, um, for radio stations, for. Broadcasts broadcast, I think it is just one of the most exciting times ever um, to be going into journalism and to be using all of these different um, communication uh, opportunities to tell a story in the best possible way, um, to tell a story in the way that's, you know, most interesting and relevant to the audience.
0: Yeah, I got to say, I I agree with you completely, and that's basically what I tell them, that they're really hasn't been a more exciting time to be in journalism because everything is changing so fast and I, usually I used to tell them because I used to work in a magazine myself you know and we really uh-huh. thought long and hard how to, figu- you know, to figure out what exactly we should do and I said you know, we didn't really succeed but you will
1: <laughs> yes, yes. I we're, haven't figured
0: it out, but you're going to. <laughs>
1: we're looking to our students and editors of uh, you know of uh, publications and at broadcasts and uh, on the web are looking to uh, these students and yeah, no, their exactly. know-how and their creativity to come up with uh, new ideas and more answers.
0: I, I agree. You're completely. so right. I agree. I agree completely. It's a tremendously exciting time to be in in, in kind of journalism in 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 all its forms. I really do agree with that. So yes. let's let's move on now to um, Jane. James Van Allen, what made you decide to write a book about James Van Allen?
1: Uh, well, I had written a previous book called *Picturing Utopia*, and it focused on um, Bertha Shambaugh, who uh, was really a woman ahead of her times. Um, she was married to uh, Benjamin Shambaugh, who uh, who was. Uh, a leading political scientist and um, and one of um, one of the political scientists who really moved history and political science into the forum of local history. You know, mm-hmm. let's look at at, at um, the people who built history. Um, you know, from uh, from the communities up, and it was it was a new approach. And she uh, she herself had all, had already been writing articles and illustrating them with her own photography really? before she met him. She had gone out and documented the Amana colonies and this was in the 1890s. Photography was forbidden out there, really? but, you know, Bertha loved this commun- these, these communities, the Amana colonies, and she'd been going there since she was a child, and they trusted her, and these elders thought well, you know, what, what harm could it do to, you know, let Bertha take some pictures, uh-huh. so she, little did they know. She'd be documenting the community for, you know, the next 10 years. She wrote... Um, two major histories about it, um, and she was a catalyst for a dozen great photographers who themselves picked up really? cameras in this community and uh, really and documented every part of it at a time when it was really sort of on a collision course with the 20th century and contemporary life.
0: Maybe, I'm sorry um, to interrupt, maybe you could just say a few words to our listeners about what, the, I know what the Amana colonies were because I live right by them, but maybe you could just say a few words about their history, just so people
1: Sure. Um, The Amana Colonies, um, this is the uh, community of true inspiration, that's the church, and it it, uh, was founded in Europe. And this was part of the pietist movement um, uh, to bring people spiritually closer to God. And and these people lived a communal life um, because uh, they wanted to be able to devote more of their time um, to spiritual searching. Uh, However, they they were opposed to state religion, they were Opposed to war, um, and and they were opposed to a lot of things that made them rather unpopular in yep. uh, Germany and the other areas where they were li- were living. They suffered immense persecution, and like many groups, they came to America seeking freedom in the 1840s, mm-hmm. um, and uh, settled uh, in Iowa on uh, you know 25,000 acres of wonderful land. They farmed. They had they had industries of their own. They tried to stay. So self-sustaining um, as much as possible, mm-hmm. and they they uh, all worked together and owned everything in common um, and uh, shared all the work, shared all the labor, which was pretty essential because they had 11 religious services a week. Um, <laughs> Uh, the church in the Amanis, though this is no longer a, a communal religious society, um, you know, everyone now owns their own businesses and houses and, mm. and whatever. However, the church is alive and well, um, and uh, there are services out in the Amanis in these traditional churches, both in uh, English and German.
0: And you said you have a personal connection there, your family.
1: And yeah, and my father grew up there, uh-huh. um, and uh, so I, you know, when I was doing this book, during Utopia, I would knock on people's doors, and they—they they had often known my father or his brother and sister or my grandparents. And I'd say, you know, I'd—I'd I'd love to see some of these glass plate negatives um, of of people who were uh, sons or uh, grandsons, daughters or granddaughters of of some of these um, original photographers. And often they'd pull the negatives out of of um, picnic baskets or attics <laughs> or um, you wow. know. Uh, the back of the closet and we'd go through these luminous pieces of art, wow. some of them were 5 by 7 inches, 5 by 8 inches um, you know, small window panes with these uh, these images in the emulsion they, they were glorious um, I brought sets of them hundreds of them back to the Museum of A Man of History um, where many of them were donated for posterity um, we published a book, you know, out of all of these um, hundreds hundreds of, of glass plate negatives uh you know we we picked ultimately about 75 for the book but um a, the best part is that they're all preserved um so many of them are at the museum now um for other people to research and enjoy uh for generations to
0: come that's fantastic you must've been re- so excited to find those things just
1: I I would I was so excited. Many of them had been, um, you know, printed in the inmanas and and were used in, you know, uh, in restaurants and other brochures, um, pamphlets. But in many cases, the um, photographer wasn't credited with the work. Mm-hmm. And so this was an opportunity to find the full collection of a great artist's work and fully credit um, mm-hmm. these people, men and women, um, with, uh, with 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 their artworks and you know in in a manner this was uh this was an artisan community um so many People pursued um, various arts and crafts in these towns. Uh, mm-hmm. Just an immense number of people and an immense outpouring of craftsmanship and uh, yeah.
0: artisanship. That's fantastic. You know, I, I've never personally had a kind of discovery moment like that in my scholarly
1: career.
0: So I envy you very much. Just coming and something like that. That's just a tremendous experience. So let's get back to um, Van Allen.
1: So how did how did we go from a religious yeah, utopia to, to space? James,
0: yeah, right, James Van Allen.
1: Well, it was it was a really small leap actually. <laughs> After *Picturing Utopia* was published, um, the University of Iowa Press um, asked me if I, you know, uh, invited me to make another proposal, and and I knew immediately um, that I wanted to uh, propose a biography of James Van Allen, and I knew because I had been in his office um, uh, in the 19 uh, 19- in 1990s, I had a son who um, who started in the physics department. Uh, he majored in physics, math, and classical languages at the University of Iowa. Wow. And we came to the physics department to visit with my 90-year-old aunt, and she said, um, oh, well, you know, let's go up and see Dr. Van Allen. She'd known him from some alumni functions. Oh, really? I said, you know, Ann you know, Elsie, we can't just drop in on, you know, one of the greatest scientists in the world. And she said, oh, sure we can. His door is always open. And, you know, sure enough, we went up to the seventh floor, um, you know, kind of uh, the garret of Van Allen Hall, and followed the faint drift of pipe smoke into his office, and the door was open with the longitude and latitude uh, you know, posted down to the inch just to, so you'd be sure where you were. Yeah. And there was James Van Allen sitting at his desk, and he greeted us and he welcomed us in and, and told us about, you know, the latest findings of Pioneer 10, wow. the mission that took him and us 8 billion miles right. out into space. And, yep. and that's where and the title of the book yeah, comes exactly. from. And yep. so there on his desk is this 1972 Hewlett Packard. Graphics plotter, yeah, and it's spitting out charts and graphs, and half the solar system, uh, across right across its desk yeah. with data, um, from Pioneer 10. That's great. And um, the rest of the office walking back through the office um, through these canyons of bookcases. There's, you know, there's a small rocket here and a copy of an instrument that had <laughs> gone in that had gone into space um, with the Mariners to Mars, and you know, I'm thinking this is a great story somebody has to write
0: this right. book so you have to tell this story.
1: and yeah. yeah luckily I was the someone
0: yeah, that's. I mean, that's it's, again. That's another fantastic discovery to go up into somebody's office like that, and just to see their entire life documented like that, and to realize that with those materials and others that you can actually do a pretty good job of, um, of, of, uh, of, of describing it, of telling it a good story. I should also tell you know everybody that's listening is that that you um, paint just in fact this picture in the book of going there for the first time and seeing Van Allen's office and the and the and the pipe smoke and so on and so forth, and you do a wonderful job of it. I really enjoyed Thank reading, you. it. it was fantastic. So tell us a little, take us a little take us through van allen's life very briefly where did he come from how did he get into science so on and so forth
1: um, James Van Allen came from Mount Pleasant, Iowa, and uh, his grandfather had settled there and opened a law office. And his his father had taken over the law business, and um, he, he had uh, he had three brothers and uh, you know a, a mother who was a one woman army. She she just did everything, kept the household running, um, you know, uh, cooked every meal, um, uh, made clothing for the family, mm-hmm. and um, these boys. Just had a wonderful boyhood in in this small town, um, and and you know at at one point um, uh, James Van Allen and his brother George, uh, interested in uh, you know in all things technical from the very start, took apart a whole car. They they saved up their <laughs> earnings. You know the family had a had a a, a big garden, and the boys sold um, fruits and vegetables in the summer, and they saved up their earnings. And they bought a car for 50 bucks. And they took it apart and labeled every part and put it back together again and got it working. Um, So, you know, they were raised on um, popular mechanics and, um, you know, the encyclopedia. Um, Their dad, you know, wanted them to spend every moment productively. They didn't participate in sports. They didn't read novels. But they read popular mechanics and the encyclopedia, and they were always busy. um, And uh, they they just naturally... uh, uh, found all sorts of of, uh, of paths um, to direct their curiosity yeah, yeah. and creativity. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and and uh, their father uh, was involved in uh, so many uh, civic activities of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, he was county chairman of the Republican Party. He served as mayor of the town. He served on the school board. Um, you know, he'd, he'd gotten a new hydroelectric plant up and running in town, and um, the boys would go with him to see this, and you know, this is the machinery late
0: twenties, early thirties then?
1: Um yeah, Van Allen uh was born in nineteen fourteen. So okay, yeah. uh yeah, this is um, you know, it, it, late twenties, uh, early thirties. Um he he actually graduated uh uh from college in the mid thirties, um from Iowa Wesleyan and uh great teachers in um in both high school and and college, Tom Poulter, in particular at uh, Iowa Wesleyan, really inspired him to take up physics. His father wanted him to be a dentist. Oh, really? But, but by college, um, Van Allen knew that he wanted to pursue physics, mm-hmm. and and um, he really um, you know made his case, and um, he was very passionate about physics already. And um, you know while while Poulter was off with one of the bird expeditions, one of Admiral Byrd's expeditions, um, uh, Van Allen was really kind of running the laboratories at Iowa Wesleyan Mm -hmm. and really um, gained there a knowledge of practical experimental science and also gained uh, a confidence to allow students to just um, take uh, their work and pursue their ideas uh, for as far as they could take them. He would always, after that, allow his grad students to really jump in at the deep end of the pool Right. Yeah. <laughs> and work with him um in uh collaboration on uh you know the first uh Explorations uh, into
0: space. Yeah, I think that's. I, I continue to think that's what's great about liberal arts colleges in general is, is that you know they're reasonably small places and they might not have all the resources of a big university, but you really do kind of learn by doing and you work very closely with faculty members. I, I went to one of them myself. Also here, okay. I, I went to Grinnell College. And, you,
1: oh, okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, and you know I had an absolutely fantastic experience there. And just as you say, I mean I worked very closely with a faculty member who was a Russian historian, and I became a Russian historian. So ah. I had a similar sort of experience. Of, you know, having this very close connection, working very closely with an individual, especially someone you know who had really thought deeply about things, and it's just very you know, it's it's totally inspirational. So I I kind of feel a, a sort of kin to. Kindred spirit with Van Allen in that. So after he graduated then from um, Iowa Wesleyan, he went on to graduate school at the University of Iowa. Did he? not?
1: Yes, he did uh-huh. in physics. And you know, as you know, Marshall, um, uh, the uh, you know these small town communities, um, you know, in the Midwest, you know, people learn how to fix anything. Yeah. You know, you really keep things running. <laughs> you know, whether whether it's the washing machine or the toaster or whatever, um, you know, people were. Uh, uh, electronic tinkerers. It's, and, funny, it's and, funny
0: you mention that because I was just telling my some of my students who actually knew this. I mean, I, I grew up in Kansas and
1: uh-huh. you know, all the so, my
0: parents... So you understand. Yeah, I do understand. And my grandfather used to say that, um, let me try to get this right, that a farmer was uh, somebody that liked to... It was it was a mechanic with a gardening habit. <laughs>
2: Great. <laughs> yeah, and
0: I th- I know just what you mean, yeah, because you, you really do spend most of your time just fixing things, the actual plowing and cultivating and so on and so forth. Well, that's not really most of it. You just have to keep everything running to make it work, so yeah, I, I know just what you mean. So anyway, go ahead. Sorry to so interrupt.
1: He, so he- takes this know-how to the University of Iowa, and and um, he's studying, he gets his Ph.D. in nuclear physics, and he helps to build one of the very first um, atomic particle ex- accelerators, uh-huh. and, um, and completes um, uh, research on, uh, you know, heavy hydrogen uh, with this uh, accelerator that he helps to build, and, uh-huh. and that was, you know, kind of uh they needed a vacuum to, for the accelerator to run and it was you know literally maintained with this goop that you know they kept um uh, liberally applying uh over any possible crack and he he got his phd thesis um complete he has this hot ticket in nuclear physics one of the hottest fields mm-hmm. of the era and um and he takes it uh, to the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism. Yeah, that's a, um,
0: I, I, that, that's a great name. Oh, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism. Yeah, and
1: this is, this is in uh, Washington, D.C., um, funded um, uh, by, you know, the Carnegie Foundation. And, uh, you know, a lot of other... Uh, young nuclear physicists were there. This was the era of exploring fission for both weapons and as a source of energy. But you know, off on the sidelines, there are these guys who are still doing, um, you know, conventional geophysics, looking at the magnetic fields of the Earth, um, you know, looking at um, looking at the aurora, studying mm-hmm. um, more about uh, the Earth and the geophysics of the Earth. And one of them is Scott Forbush. And Scott Forbush is collecting data from around the world about cosmic rays. Cosmic you know, rays, yes. Yeah, and it, it uh uh you know, it, it sounds like something out of uh, you know, science fiction. It does. But um scientists for, for decades had known that cosmic rays were raining down on the earth, but nobody really knew um, what they were or where they came from. They could go up in balloons and see that the radiation levels got higher as, you, yeah. um, as your uh, altitude increased. But they couldn't get high enough to determine what these primary particles were. They were kind of seeing the secondary streams of X-rays and alpha particles scrubbed into the atmosphere and, mm-hmm. and some cosmic rays coming through. And um, Van Allen was fascinated uh, by this research here 's Scott Forbush with a shock of white hair and these big thick glasses, and um, uh, teaches Van Allen uh you know about cosmic rays uh, also brings him into a few good poker games um, <laughs> but uh and and this this was a turning point in Van Allen's life but mm-hmm. before he could get involved um world war II interrupts mm-hmm. and Van Allen becomes part of the effort uh, to um to make new weapons for world war 2 now mm-hmm. a lot of the nuclear physicists of course got involved in the uh, manhattan project to uh make the atomic bomb mm-hmm. but Van Allen um uh, uh, went to the um, Applied Physics Laboratory at Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. and got as part of a group that developed the proximity
0: fuse. Yeah, I thought this was just absolutely fascinating. By the way, I, I teach a military history class and I'm kind of a military oh. history buff. And I, after reading your book, I went to my students and I told them the whole story about the proximity fuse and how important it was. But please tell our listeners because it really is important and it's very little known.
1: Yeah, um, you know, our anti-aircraft um, missiles at the time uh, used time fuses. And and uh, you know you'd um, you'd shoot the missile, and after a short amount of time, it would go kaboom. And if there was anything in range uh, to hit, if the pilot hap- happened to uh, not have veered out of the way, you might shoot something down. Um, the proximity fuse used radio technology, and it sent out a radio signal. And if some if something like an enemy aircraft was in proximity, the radio signal would bounce back, um, the uh, receiver would pick it up and trigger the fuse, and uh-huh. um, yeah. the missile would explode. Uh-huh. Um, so it, it was about um, six. It, it improved our ability to uh, hit uh, an enemy aircraft by about six times over and yeah. save thousands of lives in the Pacific. Two problems, though. You know, this we, we didn't have semiconductors. when yeah, we, no, exactly. we your radios
0: this was were being the most fascinating
1: part, yeah yeah they, they were using vacuum tubes yeah. in these little radios, and van Allen the, the the filament in the vacuum tube, you know, just like the filament in a light bulb kept kept breaking right and Van Allen realized it needed a shock absorber, right. so he creates a little spring, and the spring held up the spring held together this this radio, um so the proximity fuse would work. Yeah. Um, so now he he had he began to understand the technology needed for instrumentation to go, you know, up in a missile and hold together. Yeah, I thought um, this
0: was yeah, this was absolutely fascinating because it showed very well and you did a terrific job of showing how he became the expert on putting incredibly fragile things on top of things that explode. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and good knowledge to have tech. if yeah. you're gonna go and, and yeah. start exploring space with rockets, yeah, you know. <laughs>
0: No easy thing to put a working radio with a tube in it on top of a shell that's going to accelerate to basically 3000 feet per second within, you know, a fraction of a moment. Um, you got it. Yeah, that, that is a tough engineering problem because you really are shooting it incredibly quickly and it accelerates at such a rate that anything inside it is going to probably be destroyed. And I think Van Allen's I mean the practical genius of that, the kind of the kind of taking the car apart in your you know in your dad's backyard. It really you can see where it really came through. You put a spring underneath it, we'll fire a few tests, we'll see what happens, we'll tinker with it and then finally it will work. And really you're right, the proximity fuse did save thousands of lives. I don't think that people really realize how hard it is to shoot down a moving aircraft. Yeah, and uh, it's very no- difficult. Yes. And and the thing about it is the proximity fuse means you just have to kind of get close. I mean, just gauging the height of an aircraft is actually quite a difficult problem. And so a time fuse, they were, you know, they were just notoriously ineffective. I also, if you could also tell the story about Van Allen trying to convince people to use it going from ship to ship.
1: Yes. I mean, that was the other challenge. You know, the gunners really liked the kaboom you know you sent up a time fuse and it exploded no matter what right. the proximity fuse didn't explode unless you hit <laughs> hit something you know or, or uh got the radio signal uh, tr- you know right, exactly. back um yeah. triggering uh right. the missile otherwise it just plummeted silently into yeah. the sea right. so the gunners didn't like that at all yeah. so van allen went ship to ship to convince the gunners that you know this thing was really far more effective and you know, as as um uh you know as the war went on in the pacific and the japanese uh, started Coming at us with everything they had, including kamikaze pilots, okay, yeah. um, these weapons uh, really um, proved their merit, and yeah. um, and the gunners used them. Yeah. And uh, you know they were used in um, the Atlantic theater of the war too, to to shoot down the so-called buzz bombs invented by Werner yeah. von Braun, right. who was also, of course, developing and shooting the V2, right. the dreaded V2 rockets.
0: Right. Who was later Van Allen's colleague? <laughs>
1: Yes, I mean they, a, at the close a, of the war, von yeah. Brown scoops up his staff and every um, you know piece of rocket he can find, and um, he uh, he he loads it all on trains and and is then captured uh, quote unquote, quote unquote captured, um, yeah. on the American. Uh, Line, you know cross the American lines, yeah. otherwise he would have been captured by the russians yeah, right. um so he he gets himself to the American lines to be captured with uh half half of his staff um the other half uh was, was indeed captured by the Russians. So half this rocket crew goes to America, and half goes to Russia. And, you know, they're starting to work on um, uh, the, uh, you know, fledgling intercontinental ballistic missile programs. So Von Braun lands, uh, and his team, uh, they land at Fort Bliss, Texas, under house arrest. And they decide uh, they're going to reassemble these rockets and, and uh, test them um, at the White Sands, Peru ground in New Mexico Mm -hmm. but you know they don't need weapons in the nose cones so they invite um, uh, Van Allen and they invite scientists not Van Allen in particular but they invite scientists um, to put instruments in the nose cone and Van Mm -hmm. Allen hears about this and this is his chance right to to, he knows how to build an instrument that will withstand the force of a rocket because he's been involved with the proximity fuses
0: yeah exactly
1: you know, he he knows um many exactly, things. He
0: he's exactly the right so many person things. to do this. Yes, I mean, he's yeah. exactly the right person. He has just all the, the skill set, as they say in the corporate world, that he'd accidentally cobbled together by a series of kind of misfortunate, by accident and everything else. This sort of just conjunctures that, that he's just at the right place in the right time, has exactly the right skills necessary. And so he meets von. Well, I don't know if he meets von Brown, but he's invited to build an instruments to put on these. Um, and they were basically... They were V-2 rockets
1: there were V2 yeah, rockets and in the rocket. nose cone you know these renegade scientists who were willing to basically you know risk their careers on this moving laboratory yeah. you know are, are making these first instruments um, to shoot up in a rocket. A lot of, a lot of astronomers you know wanted rocket, wanted um, excuse me instruments that would stay on the ground or um, a lot of scientists felt they'd at least send their instruments up in a graceful balloon. Yeah. Um, they wanted nothing to do do with these mobile laboratories that could crash to the ground and right. splinter your instruments. And that's exactly what happened. Van Allen had a ticket um, on the very first uh, rocket launch, and it started to veer off course.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and uh, Van Allen, uh, excuse me, Von Braun uh, radioed a fuel cutoff signal, mm-hmm. and uh, the rocket goes plummeting to the ground, and lo and behold, uh, just other, as other scientists had warned him, Van Allen's instruments um, and those of other scientists splinter in a, you know, a million pieces, he yeah. so just go back and rebuild them and try again.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. At what point, uh, and this is just, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I was actually born at or on Redstone Arsenal, in Huntsville, oh. Alabama. <laughs> yes, my father was in the army there, and Von Braun and his team end up living there on Crout Hill. So it was very nice yes. to see yes. in the book my birthplace. Oh, okay, yeah. Rocket City, I believe it was called. Rocket City. Yeah, exactly. So does Van Allen ever spend any time in Huntsville? Well, sure, because um, just you know,
1: just to to finish um, what what went on at White Sands yeah, for Van yeah, Allen. Yeah, yeah, I'm
2: sorry.
1: He he, uh, you know, he. Um, finds this primary cosmic ray stream um, at about... 31 miles um, you know, up in the sky, up in the atmosphere, he finds um, the ceiling of the atmosphere um, before the cosmic rays begin to splinter into all of these secondary particles. Mm-hmm. And then other scientists um, uh, just shortly after uh, using balloons really discover that the cosmic rays are um, light speed uh, subatomic um, particles. Um, mm-hmm. And Van Allen and other scientists, as they explore cosmic rays realize that these are these are particles ex- accelerated to levels that we have not been able to match at, at Fermilab you know mm-hmm. it's this powerful atom smasher um, these are particles accelerated in the shock waves of supernova mm-hmm. of, of exploding stars these are particles that carry in a sense the fingerprint of fundamental forces in our galaxy mm-hmm. um, shooting toward earth and so uh, uh, obviously, Van Allen wants to continue this research and uh and he he goes. He goes to the University of Iowa, and von Braun uh, goes oh. to the Redstone Arsenal to continue arsenal. Right. Uh, the ballistic missile work um, mm-hmm. near Huntsville, Alabama. Right. Van Allen is now at the University of Iowa; he has no budget to pursue <laughs> rocket research, right. and he cobbles together these balloon launched rockets called raccoons yeah, he just here. You know, pitches rides on on ships
0: and starts to explore cosmic rays near the pole. Yeah, you have some great pictures in the book, by the way, for those thinking about buying the book I, of these yeah. contraptions. And they really were, you know. Again, it goes back to his ingenuity. You know, the notion that yes. oh, what we'll do is we'll put it on a balloon. We'll send the balloon up, and then we'll have the rocket fire from the balloon. It will save, you know, fuel, and we'll actually the resistance will be less, and we'll get the rocket Exactly. Fire, and, you know, it was brilliant.
1: Brilliant, and the resistance was less. That was yeah. the secret because these were these were surplus rockets from the jet propulsion laboratory that the Air Force didn't want because <laughs> they only because they could only achieve altitudes of, of twelve miles. Yeah. Um however Hitching them to a balloon, you know, they, they, the balloon would take them 15 miles, um, up into the atmosphere, and then, uh, they would be radio launched from there, Uh and where the air resistance, as you said, is so much lower, so they could reach 65, 75 miles, um, you know, into the upper altitude, and, and Van Allen could continue, uh, his research, um, During this period, and this is what brings Van Allen and Von Braun back together, um, during this period, uh, both of them are involved uh, with scientists across the world um, in an international geophysical year for 1957-58, a year of international scientific collaboration. Uh And um, a group of scientists throw down the gauntlet and say, you know, we've been talking about building satellites for years. Well, let's do it. And, of course, There were two takers, two contestants in this race, Russia and the United States. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we've just celebrated the 50th anniversary of of Sputnik in in October, and we we celebrated the 50th anniversary of America's first satellite, Explorer 1, on January 31st. And um, Van Allen and Von Braun are at the center of the drama. Mm -hmm. Um, Van Allen and Von Braun realized that America had bet its money on the wrong rocket. Mm -hmm. Our official, uh, and satellite, our official satellite mission um, was a so-called civilian mission called the Vanguard. And, And they knew that that uh, the system that, uh, Van, that von Braun continued to develop uh, somewhat clandestinely uh, while the Vanguard was being developed um, could could have beaten Sputnik into space. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, here it is, the first lap of the space race. Um, von Braun was developing this alternative clandestine satellite program, And Van Allen is developing cosmic ray detectors to fly in it. And so when Russia's Sputnik beats America into orbit – on October fourth, nineteen 1957, the Van Allen-Von Braun Jet Propulsion Team um, has a chance to put their orphan mission into action. Right. And you know, Von Braun um, begins um, uh, to you know uh, perfect the booster, and jet propulsion, the jet propulsion Laboratory is working on the upper stages in the satellite. And one of Van Allen's graduate students takes our, our a copy or a prototype of our instrument for the very first satellite, and puts it in the trunk of his Mercury and heads out to the jet propulsion laboratory. You know, here's our first satellite instrument in the trunk of a Mercury and his family's in the backseat.
0: <laughs> you know, I mean, when with, I found
1: when I found, yeah, you know, when I found that story in, in George Ludwig's um, uh, unpublished memoir, which he kindly lent to me, uh-huh. I, I thought, you know, I'm <laughs> can this be true? Can this be real? And of course it was, but it was, it was better than any novel. And and where's Van Allen, by the way, Van Allen's in Antarctica shooting raccoons and the Navy couldn't (laughs) find him. And Western union did. So he comes back, he steps into, um, you know, this, um, this, uh, Surging um, uh, uh, movement to get a satellite into orbit. I mean, people here were, people in America were, were outraged and humiliated yeah. that the Russians had beat us into space. Yeah. So, uh, so they they succeed. They get the satellite into orbit. You know, there's a lot of backslapping and a big press conference at the National Academy of Sciences, and then within a few hours. You know, uh, Van Allen gets the word, gee, we're sorry, Jim, but your instruments don't seem to be working properly. exactly. There's huge gaps in, you know, in your data. (laughs) And um, Van Allen looks at this picture, and, and the instruments keep coming back. You know, they keep – they're functioning for a while and then not functioning. They blink and of on, course, they
0: blink off. They blink on, they blink off.
1: Exactly. Um, and then and, – and, and there's these huge blanks in the data. And, of course, you know, the data isn't coming to us as a complete data set um, via computer. It's It's – it's coming through a picket fence of radio stations mm-hmm. receiving um you know transmissions from the mm-hmm. detectors and with explorer 3 uh george ludwig creates um a data recorder mm-hmm. uh you know this was really new ground it's a data recorder and they they send it up in the in uh, explorer 3 uh, with uh with the a new set of cosmic ray detectors uh-huh. and so now they at least have complete data um, sets um, being transmitted at, at this ticket fence of uh radio receiving stations. Uh-huh. So Van Allen gets the first data set in in or some of the first data sets in Washington DC and he takes them uh back to his hotel room and along the way he buys, you know, um, a fifteen cent ruler and a ten cent pad of graph paper uh-huh. and he graphs the the blanks it's still The instruments are still blinking on, blinking off, just Uh as you said. And he grasps the blanks against the altitude of the satellite, Uh and he finds these um, consistent transitions satellite gets up to a certain altitude and the instrument blanks out you know and he's pretty sure by three o'clock in the morning after um, graphing this pattern for several hours that he's found a new phenomena in space Uh gets back to Iowa and one of his grad students Carl McElwain had plugged in their spare instrument to an x-ray machine Turned the x-ray machine on full blast and lo and behold it saturates the instrument and the instrument blinks off
0: right and that tells him what's causing it
1: that tells him that the instrument is being saturated by zones in space with um with these with these intense uh these intense areas of of uh of charged particles these intense areas of radiation Uh um and uh, they announced the discovery uh, of uh, the radiation belts, which another scientist later called the Van Allen radiation. Right. He never belts.
0: called. Did he? Did he ever call them the Van Allen radiation? Belts?
1: He, you know, he he never. He always referred to them as the radiation belts. He was a very modest man, and right. other people, and you know, every um, you know every celestial map calls them the Van Allen radiation right. belts. Okay. Every encyclopedia, um, but yeah. yeah, he just you know referred to them as. Um, you know as a scientific phenomenon
0: and so this brings him fame yes
1: this brings him fame. Um, this brings fame and, and um, lots of media to the basement of a 1910 physics building right. at the University of Iowa, yeah. where every inch of space was being used to roll out, um, you know, a whole series of, of uh, new uh, instruments for space exploration. Yeah. Um, uh, with, with Explorer 4, Van Allen finally has the instrumentation to directly measure the radiation in the radiation belt. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. and he and the, all the this intensely intense zones of charged particles yeah. you know he can finally um measure uh the intensity and um and the energy levels of these particles uh-huh. and uh you know uh and, and somebody, a, a reporter actually described them as belts. You know, a reporter was trying to get a handle on how these, how these zones um,
0: sometimes encircled it the Earth. A, sometimes it really takes a science journalist reporter to give the right metaphor. You know?
1: Exactly, and that's exactly what it was. You know, yeah. he says, "Dr. Van Allen, you know what? What do you mean these things? They, they're like belts." And Van Allen said, "Yeah, yeah they're they they they're like belts." belts. <laughs> um, and uh, so now he's he's already thinking ahead. He was always thinking ahead to the next program and he's he's measuring the radiation belts with Explorer 4 and actually measuring artificial belts generated by nuclear blasts with Explorer 4 but he's already thinking ahead to missions to the other planets yeah. um, to find you know to get beyond our, our own neighborhood in the solar system mm-hmm. and um, the Mariner missions um, uh, you know take him uh, take instruments uh uh built by him and other scientists um uh to Venus and to Mars. And then the pioneer missions um it take him to the outer solar system. Yeah.
0: I thought it was interesting just to go back for a moment to his You know, he has this one moment in the sun where he appears on the cover of Time magazine, and you have a great picture in the book of Walter Cronkite coming to talk to him in Iowa City. The the idea of Walter Cronkite in Iowa City, I must say, is very rich to me. Um, We ordinarily don't have many celebrities around here. But uh, there there comes a moment um, at which uh, he finds himself in conflict with uh, the kind of general direction in which uh, America's space program is going and that is when Kennedy announces that we're going to go to the moon in a manned shot because he wasn't particularly uh, a, a fan of 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 manned um, exploration of space was he?
1: Well, you know, obviously he cheered with with uh, you know, everyone else um, when uh, uh, You know Neil Armstrong and our Apollo crew uh, landed on the moon and um, he uh, was, however, a very pragmatic experimental scientist, and he could see that for so much less money, we were able to send probes out into space and actually reach areas, um, reach the the outer solar system where where uh, human spaceflight couldn't go yeah. so uh, and and there was competition for funding um, uh, because uh, so many of the dollars went into the you know went into the um, uh, human spaceflight program yeah. uh, however you know he was able to pursue uh, those pioneer missions and um, you know all the missions that uh, that uh, came after them mm-hmm. um, and and certainly many of Van Allen's uh, graduate students um, had instruments on, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Cassini and Voyager and Galileo and these other uh, missions that have sent us these, these remarkable uh, photographs that really did um, inspire uh, a lot of interest in uh, the robotic space missions mm-hmm. um, to the outer planets um, and and gave that, um, a, you know, a, a real vibrant um, uh, public interest uh, in addition to the human space exploration.
0: Yeah. I thought I just thought it was extraordinarily interesting that he had, I mean, he had a tremendous amount of integrity. Um, oh, yeah. You know, he, he simply said that, you know, as the expert on putting fragile things on things that explode, it probably isn't the best idea to put a human being on one. It's going to be extraordinarily expensive to keep that human being alive. Mm-hmm. And he's been right in spades. I mean, you know... His testimony concerning the shuttle and so on and so forth, I remember that quite clearly in the book, and he said they say it's going to cost this, but actually it's going to cost a lot more, and he's been dead right about that.
1: Yeah, and about the International Space Station um, accelerating costs,
0: too. Right, he said these things are going to be keeping people alive on the way to space, in space, and bringing them back is just, I mean, obviously it's not prohibitively expensive because we do it, but I think he was, you know, he had a tremendous amount of integrity in saying, look, the scientific payoff is going to be low, and it may be popular politically, but it's, you know, it's not really going to serve our purposes very well, and I, I think he's been, you know, totally vindicated in those judgments, especially by recent events concerning the space shuttle, not to politicize what is otherwise a kind of apolitical life, but, you know, he's right. He and right. and
1: you know, and it was a tough position to take. You know, no, the courage to take that position, and I, and I think all of us, you know, want to see. Um, you know, human space exploration um, ultimately succeed. Yeah, you know, no. all of us want to Clearly. want to pursue that dream of going out into space. But but for the near term, where he was working, you know, he he wanted he wanted to see these missions that promised to bring so much data back. Um, yeah. Robotic missions, uh, data from places that you couldn't go with right. humans, with human space exploration. Yeah, and, and yeah. there
0: and there he succeeded too. I mean, I, yes, I think that you know, he again, did. he's been vindicated by history in that way. These very long distance missions have yielded huge amounts of data, data that will be going through for centuries, um, you know, as opposed to the well, I don't know, I, I was going to say as opposed to the moonshots, which have yielded a lot of rocks, um, which are very interesting and all, but you know, nonetheless, uh, the, the, these very long distance uh, missions that he sent instruments on, like, they, they really have done a lot to kind of change our picture of the, the the solar system and the universe in general, which is quite quite remarkable, I think. Um, let me. Um, and he led the way to remapping the solar system. No, he did. Maybe you could just say a few words about that. You say that he remapped the solar system. What did the what did the solar system look like before Van Allen?
1: Well, first of all, we didn't know about the radiation belts um, you know, at at uh at the uh, Saturn at all he, that was a brand new discovery, and he confirmed the radiation belts that had been um, detected by radio telescopes at uh-huh. Jupiter. Uh, he and other scientists, so they began to um, uh, you know be able to view the solar system in terms of um, you know uh, the magnetic fields um, involved. They also began to um, map the solar wind uh-huh. um, and uh, realize that that the solar wind uh, was the solar weather, so to speak, um, was blowing far beyond Pluto. We sort of thought of Pluto as, as you know, the front gate of uh, of the solar system. And now we know that the solar wind, um, this kind of bubble encasing the solar system, um, it extends billions of miles past Pluto. Yeah. Um, then uh, Pioneer 10 and Voyager uh, 1, uh, for years, were in a race to discover that boundary of the mm-hmm. solar system. But it's it's still- Still billions of miles away, and mm-hmm. uh, Van Allen had instruments on Pioneer 10. Um, uh, his um, uh, a former grad student Don Gurnett, who uh, who uh, continues to explore with uh, instruments on on a Voyager 1 and and uh, Cassini and many other space missions. Uh, uh kid we're we're basically in a in a race themselves yeah. to discover the boundary of the solar system. Here are two scientists who have um uh, instruments on um, space missions that are billions of miles apart heading toward opposite ends of the solar system mm-hmm. and their offices are about you know, fifty <laughs> feet apart <laughs> on the seventh floor of Van Allen Hall you know um, picture. yes picture. and and uh uh, uh was able to uh you know to estimate um that uh the uh, boundary of the solar system is uh probably about you know, 14 billion uh, miles out in space, and mm-hmm. and hopefully Voyager will get there. Yeah, Van Allen, so uh, you know, uh, really really hoped that yeah. uh, Voyager, which is which is still traveling, uh, will continue on its way and and find that boundary. Pioneer 10 called home for the last time in 2003 yep. at about 8 billion miles out in space, and um, it it continues on. You know, kind of a little a little ghost chip mm-hmm. uh, heading toward the Taurus constellation. So
0: great image, isn't it? A great image. Thinking. Of yes. I, yes. It just kind of puts the hairs up on the back of my neck. Let me let me ask you or. Uh, proposed one you've been so generous with your time and this is also fascinating. We could go on forever, at least I could go on forever. Let me ask one question that relates again to Van Allen in Iowa. It seems like there was some strange connection between Van Allen and Iowa. I mean he must have just loved the place because somebody with that kind of stature gets lots of offers to go lots of other places. But Van Allen stayed.
1: Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, you know, I think he had um he had a, a great commitment to the university. And of course he had he had you know built this this kind of scientific empire yeah. right there um at, at his home base at a place he loved um working with with you know, students who um, came to his doorstep and were recruited into uh, a space program they hadn't known existed five right. minutes before, yeah. you know, and he could sniff out students um, like George Ludwig and like Don, Don Um These guys came from towns, you know, within a stone's throw of the University of Iowa, and, and both of them had um, just a great deal of ingenuity and, and uh, know-how and creativity regarding electricity Uh Van Allen could sniff out a grad student um, with a know-how in electronics from about two miles away. (laughs) 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 And, and, you know, uh, uh, Don Gurnett creates this... um, uh, very low frequency radio receiver and you know and um and uh, uh, convinces Van Allen to put it on a
2: yeah.
1: on a home built engine satellite you know one of the yeah. one of the satellites built at the University of iowa and and gives in a sense the radiation belts their own radio program they send um, this very low frequency radio receiver mm-hmm. uh, into space, and they 're hearing. Um, you know natural radio transmissions right. from the radiation belt suddenly and and also this became a device um, with pitch and frequency um, to measure. Uh, very accurately, even small changes in the solar wind that resulted from solar flares. So again, um, like cosmic ray, like, uh, the cosmic ray detectors became a way, um, to, uh, detect, uh, galactic forces, um, the very low frequency, uh, uh, radio receiver became a way to detect um, changes in the solar wind and to follow the solar wind out across the solar system. Mm-hmm. Um, very ingenious devices that gave us incredible tools um, that uh, scientists are still using mm-hmm. um, to explore our solar system. That's remarkable.
0: Well, uh, Abigail Fersner, I, I just want to thank you, first of all, for a fantastic piece of work. The book is James Van Allen, The First 8 Billion Miles. It just came out from the University of Iowa. And I hope that everybody listens to this show buys a copy of it. And I also just want to thank you, Abigail, for talking to us. I mean, it's oh, it's, thank it's, been, you, Marshall. It's, it's totally been a delight, you know, and, uh, and we'll have you on the show for your next book.
1: Okay? Well, thank you. And thank you for all of your insights and all of your interest. It's, it's just been so fun to talk Terrific. with you.
0: Okay, well, it's been great to talk to you. All right. Okay, bye-bye.
1: Have a good day.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Abigail Firstner about her book, James Van Allen the first 8 billion miles. We hope you enjoyed the interview, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks very much.